Well, good evening, Red Oak. Y'all doing okay? Yeah? Uh, welcome to everybody who's uh, tuning in online. I know a lot of people are traveling and, um, or maybe listening later in a podcast. So it's okay to say um, hello to those who are going to be listening later. Um, I know I am looking forward to, uh, to Thanksgiving this week and all of the delicious meals that will happen because of Thanksgiving. I love to eat food. It is awesome. And God gave us taste buds to enjoy delicious food. He didn't have to do that because he's a good God. And so that's one reason I love our God. And, um, and all, more than eating real food, I love eating this food. And so we're going to eat a lot tonight. All right? This passage is packed full of a lot of delicious knowledge. And so um, we're going to cover the rest of chapter 2. Um, and uh, so we're going to be in 18 through 25 tonight. If you have your Bibles, you can open to Genesis chapter 2, 18 through 25. Um, then we're going to pick up with chapter 3 next Sunday. Um, some people have, have tried uh, to say that there are two creation accounts in Genesis. There's chapter 1 and then that there's chapter 2 and that those are two different creation accounts. Um, however, these chapters are not contradictory. Instead, they are complementary. It's important to remember that Genesis 2 is a zoomed-in view of day 6 of creation from chapter 1. So chapter 1 was a big picture, and chapter 2 is in more detail. God is going to give us the order and the orientation of creation of man and woman. And so there's a lot of different themes in this passage, and and I'm going to go super fast tonight. Um, And so if you have to go back and listen to it again, then do that. But um, if you take notes, then take them really fast. Because uh, I'm going to talk really fast. So the themes that we're going to cover are loneliness, gender, gender roles, sexuality, and marriage. I told you it was going to be a lot. Um, all of which God addresses and clearly defines why our world tries to redefine each of these. I was listening to the briefing with Al Mohler on podcast last week, and he was addressing an article entitled Traditional Side B LGBTQ Christians Experience a Renaissance. So not only is that headline really confusing, but it's extremely problematic, right? Moeller goes on to to do a really great job of of defining for us what identity politics is in our present culture and the impact that it has. And he said this, and I quote, identity politics is the claim that our primary identity is found not not biblically in being created in God's image and then for Christians being redeemed by Christ. Rather, our primary identity is in some kind of earthly designation. It might be ethnic, it might be political, it might be national, it might be something related to skin color, it might be related to what is now claimed to be a sexual identity or sexual orientation. Identity politics in whatever form is absolutely toxic. It is contradictory to the gospel of Jesus Christ, end quote. And this is, at, at, this is really spot on because our world wants to ignore God. And, and our world tries to define humanity and gender and sexual morality and marriage outside of God's good created order. And so this is just a warning that this passage tonight, Genesis 2, 18 through 25, is... Um, It flies in the face of political correctness, okay? So just a warning. So let's pray before we dive in to God's word. Father, I thank you so much just for the opportunity to gather together, to be in this room together for everyone who is um, with us um, abroad right now. Lord, we we praise you and thank you uh, for the new life that we just got to celebrate 
that Greg and Kilby are discipling uh, new believers and, uh, and your kingdom is expanding across the globe. We praise you for that. We thank you for that. And we thank you for this opportunity that we have to dive into your word. I pray that right now that you would turn our hearts towards you, God, that um, it would not be for prideful gain or, or puffed up knowledge that, that we dive in right now, that you would open up our eyes to, to behold wonderful things that we've never seen before in your word, that you would unite our hearts to your heart, that we would be in alignment with you, and that we would submit to your word. We ask you to speak right now to us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, picking up in verse 18, it says, Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. So all that God created was perfect. This is, this is all still before the fall. So God created it, and it was good. The first thing that God said that's not good in his creation was Adam's loneliness. So we aren't told that Adam knew that he was lonely. We're not told that he was complaining or that he was depressed. Right? It just says that God said it's not good for him to be alone. He lived in a perfect world, but as each of the animals passed by him, and he, and he had to have noticed as they were passing by in pairs that there's a male and there's a female. There's a male and there's a female. But there wasn't a helper fit for Adam to be found in all of the created order. He saw none that, that complimented him, none that were like him but opposite him. He was unable to have a conversation with the animals. There was no soul-level connection because there was none like him. The word helper doesn't mean weaker. It's not a demeaning term. It actually describes one who provides for what is lacking. Therefore, the woman could do what man could not do by himself. Man needed a corresponding counterpart, one that shared in his very nature. A little while back, Allie and I were watching uh, one of the shows about the people who live in Alaska on the last frontier. Have you ever seen one of those Alaskan shows? Right? There's a lot of them. Uh, and, and so they, they were interviewing this one guy um, who lived by himself, uh, and while they were interviewing him, he confessed. Now, I'm sure he didn't think he was confessing, but he confessed, and he said this. He said, sure, I get lonely. It's, it's very isolated living here in this area, but that's why I've got my dogs. So he was simply speaking the truth that dogs aren't enough for man, that they, they aren't suitable companions for life, that man needs woman. It's biblical. We, we were created for a relationship with one another. So look at verse 19. It says, now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field, every bird of the heavens, and brought them to the man to see what he could call them, what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. Our creator made animals out of the ground. God brings the animals to Adam, and Adam names them. And I find it interesting that, that God doesn't question what Adam names them. He's not like, that's a terrible name, aardvark. We're going to name it something else. No, like he doesn't question. He, whatever the man named it, that's what it was. And so when I'm, I'm with my pinwheel kid, <laughs> he's really funny. I'll ask him a question. If he gets it right, he, he, says, he says, oh, yeah, big brain, baby, big brain. And, and I'm like, Carson, why do you think you have a big brain? Like, he's just bragging, right? Because he, he thinks he has a big, big brain. Well, Adam really did have a brain unlike ours, right? Adam was the single most intelligent man on the earth. I know he was the only man on the earth. But his brain was untainted by sin. We can't even fathom that. So he was the single most intelligent man. 
who ever lived. For him to name all the kinds of animals wasn't a big deal. It was just a job that his God had given to him. And Adam calling them by name implies that he was exercising authority over the beasts. And unlike all of the birds of the air or beasts of the field or fish in the sea, Adam could speak. So like Brody said last week, we were created in God's image Right? And that sets us apart from all of other creation. And therefore, as humans, we are unique in creation. We have uh, logical reasoning capacities. Right? We have analytical thinking skills. We have the ability to communicate through speaking various different languages. This is something that animals cannot do. We've heard people joke um, that it would have probably taken Adam a heck of a lot longer to name the animals if Eve would have been involved in the scenario. But, I, I mean, I know that it takes a long time for, for families even to decide on what they're going to call their pets, right? Much less, like, deciding baby names. That can take a really long time, right? And, and so, so Adam was so low, there's no discussion here. There's no disagreement, and there's no debate. It just happens. Look at verse 20. The man gave names to all livestock, to the birds of the heavens, and every beast of the field. Boom, just like that. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. Helper for him is the same phrase used in verse 18. Fit for him means compatible, not clone, but complementary. The word helper in the Hebrew is ezer, which means one who supplies strength in the area that one is lacking. It, it complements the man. Helper doesn't mean stronger or weaker. We, weren't, we were not created to live life alone. The woman would be special, uniquely designed, fit for man. Right? Look, look what our God does in verse 21. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. Here we see that God is the first anesthesiologist. He puts Adam to sleep in order to perform the first surgery in human history. The Lord God caused the man to sleep, which means that he is sovereign even over your sleep. So God took Adam's flesh and bone. Right? It's unique that God took from Adam's side. He didn't take it from some other part of his body. The Bible commentator Matthew Henry wrote this, she was not made out of his head to rule over him, nor out of his feet to be trampled upon by him, but out of his side to be equal with him, under his arm to be protected, and near his heart to be beloved. That's a beautiful picture, right, of God's desire for husbands and for wives in that relationship. God caused another body his bride, to come out of the side of Adam, right? And God caused another body, his church, to come out of the side of Jesus. When Jesus' side was pierced on the cross, blood and water flowed out, right? Sleep is, is a synonym for death in, in the word of God, and only God can bring life out of death. Jesus' death brought forth life for all those who would ever trust in his sacrifice. And so for, for Jesus, when he conquered our greatest enemy, death, he, by dying on the cross, he came back to life. The bride of Christ, the church, was caused by the Lord God to come out of the side of the second Adam. Let's continue to, in verse 22. See how God made woman. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. So our creator God was not done until, and he would not rest until he created the woman. If man is the crown of creation, Proverbs 12, 4 says, an excellent wife is the crown of her husband. This is unlike how God created all of the animals. The animals came from the ground. The woman was made out of the man. This is contrasted with verse 19. With the rib God took from the man, he built the woman. Kent Hughes said this, she was made of the same stuff as the man. 
the same bone, the same flesh, the same DNA. Her correspondence in form, her femaleness, her estrogens were shaped and constituted from the man. Eve was the first person to be created from a living being. Because she came from Adam, she perfectly shared the image of God. God brought all of the animals to the man in verse 19, and there was not found a helper fit for him. And after God creates the woman from what he took out of the man, we find the same phrase from 19 in verse 22. The Lord God brought her to the man. So from this, we can learn that God officiated the first wedding. So God, God the Father brings this daughter to this man. Marriage is God's idea, God's creation. It's God-ordained. Marriage between one man and one woman for life. This is foundational truth that we're learning from this passage. God designed marriage. God designed the family. Remember who this is written to, the people of Israel. They're they're getting ready to enter into the promised land, right? They're going to encounter people with a vastly different worldview than they have. And Genesis gives God's people a very specific God-centered worldview that set them apart from other nations, Right? A heterosexual, monogamous marriage stood in stark contrast to other nations. God knew that the Israelites would encounter the various gods of the Canaanites and that men would be led away from God-honoring marriage to indulge in sexual morality, fornication, adultery, and polygamy. Alan Ross says that God intended that the man and woman be a spiritual, functional unity, walking in integrity, serving him, and keeping his commandments. If this pattern prevailed, the nation would live and prosper under God's good hand of blessing. So for the Israelites to faithfully live out God's order of marriage would be very countercultural in their day and age. Is the same not true for us today? Marriage has been under attack since the serpent talked to Eve. Remember how Adam couldn't find a helper amongst all of the animal kingdom? Remember how he couldn't find a friend or a companion that was like him? Look in verse 23 at how different Adam's response is once he sees Eve. It says, Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. So Adam sings and delights at the sight of her. He's like, finally, at last. He's so excited that he writes the first love poem. And men have been trying to write poetry ever since. Or maybe you haven't. You should try. I thought about reading a poem that I wrote to Allie. No, Harry, I'm not going to do that. He says, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. This one is like me, not like the animals. Adam recognized same flesh, same bone opposite sex. In this poem, we find the first feminine pronoun, she. Andreas Kostenberger said, God only made one suitable helper for Adam, and she was female. What is more, it was God who perceived Adam's aloneness and hence created the woman. God took the initiative in fashioning a compatible human companion for the man. The Hebrew word for man is ish, and the word for woman is isha. See how similar they are? There's, there's so much opportunity for jokes here. Like, I imagine that, that Adam's eyes got really big the first time that he saw Eve, that his jaw dropped, right? And he's like, oh, whoa, man. Um, he, I'm sure you've heard that before. That's really old. Um, but he, it's true, nonetheless, that he proclaims and delights in her. 
right? He exercises his, his God-given responsibility, right? And he names her Eve. He calls her Isha. So she was taken out of me. She's like me, but not exactly like me. She's amazing. Isha. Okay. Okay. I'll stop. Ish and Isha will be, and they are, they complement each other perfectly. There is an unmistakable distinction between male and female. It's absolutely undeniable. Men and women were both created in God's image. Equal in value, distinct in roles, beautifully complementary. Look at verse 24. It says, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So this is where we get the leave and cleave comment that maybe you've heard before. God designed marriage to be a unique relationship. Biblical marriage is a covenant between one man and one woman that is monogamous for life. Jesus and Paul both affirm covenant biblical marriage. In Matthew 19, 4 through 5, Jesus was being questioned about divorce, and he answered and said this, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And he said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. In his book, Genesis in Space and Time, Francis Schaeffer says this, Jesus reaches back and puts together the creation of man in Genesis 1 with the creation of man in Genesis 2 to show a unity that forms the basis for his view of marriage. So division, divorce, destruction is not God's original design for marriage. Jesus clearly considered marriage to be a sacred bond between one man and one woman established by and entered into before God. In Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 through 32, which was our corporate reading together, right? Paul expounds upon and gives further instructions to husbands and wives. It's clear that no relationship should be before this one. God created it to be covenant faithfulness on display. This God-centered worldview when it comes to marriage helped to set Israel apart from all other nations in the promised land. It helps to, to set the early church apart from the Roman Empire, and it helps us today to set the church apart from our culture. From Genesis 2.24, coupled with Genesis 1.28, we get the marriage mandate from our creator God. Increase, multiply, fill the earth, become one flesh. So we see that God is the sovereign and good creator of sex. That this union is divine in origin. That God has given us the origin, meaning, morality, and destiny of marriage. Marriage is from God. Its purpose is holiness, and it's for God's glory, and its goal is oneness. One of the significances of God's design for the institution of marriage, Alan Ross says this, that the man and the woman correspond and become one flesh must not be limited to the physical level. They help one another serve the Lord and keep his command so that they might continue their life as his representatives in the world. So marriage is not about your happiness. It's about holiness, representing Jesus well to the world to the praise of his glory. The marriage picture mirrors the unity in the Trinity, and it beautifully illustrates the loving and intimate relationship between Christ and his church. Jesus was the only perfect husband who loved his bride, the church. That's us. So sacrificially that he promised and fulfilled his promise to her. He said, I'll never leave you, nor will I forsake you. 
I'll be with you always, even to the end of the age. Now, this love is hard for us to comprehend because we are all too often full of shame. That's why Genesis 2.25 is so very hard for us to imagine. Look with it. Look at it with me. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. This is really, really difficult for us to wrap our brains around and understand. God gave sexual intimacy to be enjoyed within the context of covenant Christian marriage. And sex is, is pre-fall. It's perfect unity, physical, spiritual, emotional. The man and his wife were, were both without clothes, naked because they had no need to protect themselves. There was no fear in the garden. There was no fear of harm. They were, they were completely vulnerable with one another. They were unafraid. They were unashamed. Why? Well, because there was no sin. There was no rebellion yet in the world. But sin changed all of that. To bring it full circle, at the end of the sixth day, Yahweh says his not good statement became very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. And next, next week, we're going to see a new character enter the scene. We're going to explore the fall in Genesis 3. But for now, let's close our time by reflecting on what God is communicating to us through this passage. Despite our sin, what distinctively makes us human is that we were created in God's image, male and female. Your identity is not based upon your job, your education, your intelligence, your sexuality, or your relationship status. Your creator made you in his image to reflect him, enjoy relationship with him, to get to know him more, and to make him known. So now, if you are currently single, are you struggling with loneliness? Remember that the Lord is with his children. He sees you, and just like he saw Adam, he sees you, and he knows. How are you leveraging your singleness for God's glory? Remember, your identity isn't in a spouse, it's in Christ. So the question you need to, to answer is, is Jesus enough for me? Is Jesus enough for me while I'm waiting for a spouse if you desire to be married? And if you are married, the same question can be asked. Is Jesus enough for me? If, if the Lord decides to take away your spouse, is Jesus enough? Is your marriage a stage to display the gospel? Or are you selfishly being married? Does your marriage need to be restored? God is a God of restoration. He desires for there to be reconciliation in relationships, for there to be God-glorifying unity. Does your marriage represent well the beauty and unity between Christ and his church? You know, transparently, as I was going through these and I was asking these questions of myself, I was convicted because these are really hard questions to ask. They're hard questions to answer. And men, right now I'm gonna speak to you and, I, and I, I pray that you are just as convicted as I am because I know that I am not perfect when it comes to these questions. So men, are you being the husband God created you to be? You are the shepherd of your family. He designed you to lead your wife and your family. Are you honoring God by loving her like Christ loved the church? Are you singing over her? Are you delighting in her? Are you writing her? 
Are you praying for her? Are you discipling your kids? Are you dying to yourself and laying yourself down for your family? I am by no means perfect at these. I fell in many ways in this, as my wife and kids can attest to. But I know one thing is that we're all on this journey together. And I pray that this would be just as challenging for you as it is for me. And now, ladies, if you are a woman and you're married, are you being the wife God created you to be? He intended you to be a helper fit for your husband. Are you picking up where he is lacking? Are you complimenting him appropriately? Are you praying for him and encouraging him and respecting him? Are you being the companion God created you to be, caring and showing compassion? Husbands and wives, are y'all both enjoying the good gifts of marriage that God has given you to enjoy? Now, maybe verse 25 is shocking to you because you can't imagine being unashamed. Maybe you are so ashamed at what has been done to you or what you have done yourself. Maybe you've let shame define you. No matter where you are today, the Father loves you. Jesus can restore you reconcile and redefine you and the Holy Spirit comforts you whether you are single or whether you are married your goal in life is the same as a follower of Christ God said in 1 Thessalonians 4 3 that his will for you and for me is your sanctification that you would be more like Jesus if you let him Jesus will wash away your shame with his grace will you turn to him I'm going to close with this quote from Aaron Armstrong. Understanding humanity's identity as God's image bearers is the key to pursuing human dignity and flourishing. It challenges us to be compassionate towards those whom we might disagree or who would vilify our beliefs. It means caring for those in need, protecting the unborn, advocating for adoption, standing against eugenics, and celebrating the elderly. It means valuing all others, people from every nation, tongue, and tribe, and seeking to put every last semblance of racism, classism, and sexism, or any other ism to death in our hearts as we pursue the same in our culture. And it means sharing the gospel with our fellow fallen image bearers, introducing them to the one who has the power to redeem and restore them so that they can once again reflect their creator in the world. Will you turn to the Lord God, Yahweh? He alone is the sovereign creator, covenant maker, sustainer, and savior. He alone can help you recover and pursue his original good design. So when you have a God-centered worldview and you let God define your relationships and Jesus be the center of love and life, you come to find out that it's very, very good. Let's pray. Father God, I humbly come before you praising you and thanking you for your word. We acknowledge that we so often turn to things you've created instead of turning to you, our creator. We so often run to the things in this world and not first to you. Forgive us when we do that. Lord, forgive us for when we have let shame 
define us, when we have felt like we are too covered in shame to come to you. Forgive us when we forget that your grace is sufficient, that you can wash away all of our sin and throw it as far as the east is from the west. Father, forgive us when we do not uphold the biblical definition of marriage. Lord, I, I praise you and thank you for this most wonderful gift that you have given to us, how you created and designed marriage and the family to function, that you are the foundation of it all. Father, I pray that we would stand firm on the truth of your word that you have revealed to us and that we would not sway from it because we need it. It is very good because through it, you have shown us the way to life through your son, Jesus. And it's in his name we pray, amen.